exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. BM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, Facebook has agreed to tighten privacy controls as part of a settlement with U.S. regulators over abuse of user data, according to the BBC. The Federal Trade Commission says Facebook would tighten consent rules on privacy and close access to deleted accounts in 30 days or less. The case began in 2009 when Facebook changed settings to make public details users may have deemed private. The FTC says Facebook, which has 800 million users, had agreed to get consumers' approval before changing the way it shares their data. In national news, Conrad Murray, the U.S. doctor convicted of the involuntary manslaughter of pop superstar Michael Jackson, has been sentenced to four years in county jail, according to the BBC. Also in national news, American Airlines parent company AMR Corporation has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, according to the BBC. The company expects the airline to continue to operate as normal throughout the bankruptcy process. American Airlines was the only major U.S. airline with international routes that did not file for bankruptcy after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And in local news, a winter weather advisory is in effect for the area. Three to five inches of Heavy, wet snow is expected tonight. Well, first up on the show today, we have Michael Lawrence on the phone. He's a professor of, at MSU's College of Law, and he is also the author of Radicals in Their Own Time, 400 Years of Struggle for Liberty and Equal Justice in America. And he will be doing a reading at Everybody Reads in Lansing this Thursday from 7 to 9 p.m. Welcome to the show, Michael Lawrence. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first off, tell me about your book, Radicals in Their Own Time. Well, Radicals in Their Own Time uh, is a book that looks at five characters, five individuals throughout uh, the span of 400 years of American history who have uh, been stalwarts in uh, in fighting for liberty and equal justice. And um, the five people are Roger Williams uh, for the proposition of religious freedom of conscience who moved to the colonies in 1631 from England uh, to escape religious persecution, and then uh, Thomas Paine, uh, around the Revolutionary Era, who wrote Common Sense. Then Elizabeth Cady Stanton for the proposition of women's rights, who lived during the 19th century. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, for black rights, who lived from 1868 to 1963. And then finally, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. for uh, Native American rights, who um, lived during 20th century and just passed away a few years ago. And, and why did you choose these people? And what, I guess, drawed you to these um, these five individuals? Well, we, we in our history, we, we hear so often about uh, people who um, work within hierarchies. Who we, we, we usually discuss as those who, again, work within hierarchies and build them up. But in fact, history makers are very often those who work to tear down uh, oppressive hierarchies and uh, hierarchies that perpetuate injustice and inequality. And these um, are five individuals who, who did that. They viewed uh, the status quo and uh, viewed that it, and saw that it was in, inequitable and uh, fought to change it. It really is kind of guided or epitomized by the epigraph of the book, which quotes Albert Einstein in 1953, saying, in teaching history, there should be extensive discussions of personalities who benefited mankind through independence of character and judgment. So in the spirit of Einstein's words, um, Radicals in Their Own Time uh, discusses the personalities of um, these five Americans who led the way in bursting some of America's most inglorious chains of injustice and oppression. And why did you want to write this book? Well, I think it's uh, important for us to remember during uh, during all times, uh, during any time, that uh, oppression, oppression does continue to work and that those uh, individuals who stand up uh, and speak truth to power can make a real difference, even though it makes uh, life difficult for themselves, because without exception, uh, all five of these people suffered in many respects for their advocacy and for their fighting for the for the right, rights and equal justice that they they uh, they argued for, uh, in the sense of lost friends and um, uh, being ostracized by society and whatnot. But it's an important role for people to take to be um, willing to speak truth to power. Yeah, you're talking about some of them um, being ostracized. And when I was 
researching a little bit, I, I heard that Thomas Paine, you know, he, he had some radical things to say. Um, and then in the end, I think in the article I was reading, it said only six people came to his funeral. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, Paine today is, 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 is a famous individual, and we all remember him as a revolutionary founder and the author of Common Sense and the Rights of Man. And, and really, frankly, he was, in fact, the best-selling author in 18th century America and in England as well. He was hugely popular, but what he did was he what really sent him down uh, down uh, down the path of, of being ostracized was writing a very very controversial book called The Age of Reason, which took on um, religious orthodoxy and criticized religious orthodoxy and religious or- Christian orthodoxy mostly and its role in perpetuating uh, injustice and so forth. And that's a that's a difficult thing to do, and that's true of all these people. They took on or they identified Christian orthodoxy and religious orthodoxy as being or having a role in um, in injustice. And that's a difficult thing to do in this country. So uh, the people that you're talking about in this book, they touch on um, issues of independence, um, uh, African-American rights, Native American rights, women's rights. Um, so I'm curious, in, in today's day and age, um, you know, in your book, you're talking about issues of, of liberty and equal justice. And regarding what's going on in this day and age, what what issues regarding liberty and equal justice would you like to see changed? Well, uh, there, certainly in, in many of these areas, there are uh, work remains to be done. Uh, certainly, we, we we're not at an endpoint. Certainly, in any of these areas, with women's rights, with uh, racial rights, uh, with Native American rights, there's still work to be done. Certainly, an area that I considered uh, writing about it to give and dedicating a chapter to was uh, uh, same-sex marriage and and uh, sexual orientation rights. Of course, that's a huge issue today. Uh, and indeed, uh, in the very beginning of the book, I talk about um, the proposition in in uh, 2008 in California, where basically the populace the populace of California um, decided to um, essentially discriminate against fellow citizens and uh, and uh, deny them the equal right to marry. Now that has been uh, been reversed, or that has been struck down as unconstitutional by the district court, the federal district court, and it's on review and on appeal in the um, higher federal courts at this point, and it will eventually reach the Supreme Court. So you are a professor um, of law here at MSU's College of Law. What classes do you teach here? Uh, I teach constitutional law. Okay. So does this book relate to uh, what you teach in class as well? Well, it does, and and it's it, 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 these these individuals um, certainly those who lived during and after the founding and the framing of the Constitution in the in, in uh, the, the 18th century, uh, they were very much interested in the Constitution and how the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution because you know we we view and we think of the U.S. Supreme Court as a protector of rights, but very often throughout history, it has not been a very good protector of individual rights and freedoms. And so there's a lot of work to be done for by lawyers and by uh, advocates to make sure that the Supreme Court and try to uh, urge it to, to do the right thing and, and to protect liberty and equal justice. Well, on the phone is Michael Lawrence. He's a professor at MSU's College of Law, and he is the author of Radicals in Their Own Time, 400 Years of Struggle for Liberty and Justice in America, and Equal Justice in America, excuse me. And he will be at Everybody Reads in Lansing this ter- Thursday from 7 to 9 p.m. to present his book. Michael Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us on Impact Exposure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning on the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. 
Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Tamara Mayers is a jazz singer who studied in the vocal jazz program at MSU. Up next is an interview I did with her last January. So you were born in the Virgin Islands. Yes. Talk about the the music that you were that you grew up with. Just well, pretty much. Um, of course, calypso, soca, reggae, dancehall, all of that stuff. Um, some of it was very traditional. Some of it was just American influence. Actually, there's a lot of hip hop. There's a lot of jazz. There's a lot of rock, alternative rock, things like that. So um, I pretty much grew up on that type of music. So were you always singing at, at a young age and always in the performance scene or the music scene? Not really. Um, <laughs> my my earliest memory of, of singing was when I was three years old. My favorite group was uh, Cool in the Gang. And my mom told me that I used to walk around the house with my arms spread out singing Cherish the Love at the top of my lungs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> So I also hear that um, you were in the Air Force and were able to perform across the globe through that. Yeah, um, I actually joined this this uh, gospel choir called called the Aviano Gospel Choir, and we used to travel about once a month to uh, different Italian towns. I was in Aviano, Italy, and and we we put on these concerts sometimes outside, sometimes in churches. But no matter what, no matter where we went, the people were always appreciative, and they could barely speak English, but they would sing along with us, you know, with the songs that they knew, and it was just really exciting. And how did you fall into jazz? I literally fell into it, because <laughs> uh, my undergrad, I was doing classical music for about two to three years, and I had been listening to jazz my entire life, but I always thought that it was too difficult. And I didn't think that I had the technique required to sing jazz. And this is pretty much how it went. I was driving to school one day, and I was listening to Ella on the radio station. And I decided, you know, I'm going to try this. So I turned the radio down, and um, I just started singing Summertime. (laughs) And I sounded completely different in comparison to my classical voice. And I had never really heard that voice before. So I said, well, you know what, let me go talk to the jazz professor, you know, um, and I did. And it was pretty much the last two semesters of my undergrad. That's when I started doing jazz. And then I got uh, very lucky <laughs> and got in here to the, the MSU jazz, uh, jazz jazz department and has been just performing and singing ever since. All because of good old Elle Fitzgerald. Good old Ella. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's how I fell in love with jazz as well. Oh, yeah. But without further ado, do you want to sing a song for us? Sure, sure. The first song I'm going to sing is uh, God Bless the Child with my friend Ralph Tope on guitar. Welcome to the show, Ralph Tope. How you doing? Tree. 
Studio is Tamara Mayers, and on guitar is Ralph Tope, and sh- and tomorrow you just sang "God Bless the Child." Um, so I'm curious. Um, while I was watching you singing, you have so much soul and life, and in, in what you sing, and I wonder how different singing is you is for you, um, having been trained classically, and the the feeling that you get, um, and I guess the emotions that you get when when you're singing classical versus how you may feel when you're singing jazz. Is there much of a difference there for you? For me, there is. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, when I was singing classical, I was thinking so much about the technical aspects of it, of making sure that I'm breathing correctly and things like that. And don't get, don't get me wrong, in jazz, you think about the same things. However, um, I've had several teachers tell me, you learn the, the, the technique, and then you forget it once you start performing. You know, Not forget it as in forgetting your actual technique, but just just sing, just have a good time, just enjoy it. And that's what I try to do. And I also understand that before you kind of got in the jazz world, you were a spoken word, spoken, I sound like a youper, a, a spoken word artist. Yes, I did. I used to do spoken word poetry. Honestly, my writing was good, but I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I mean, the presentation know, I aspect it. of it. Well, the presentation was fine. You know, um, uh, I think I used to have an issue with forgetting my my words, oh. you know. So of course, when you're a spoken word artist and you're speaking words, when you forget them, what else do you have? <laughs> so, so that was my main issue with it. But but for the most part, like I enjoy watching everyone else that does it. Like I enjoy watching them do it because I think that they're awesome at it. And you know, um, for me, it's less pressure doing music actually. <laughs> Well, what I found interesting is that um, you used poems as teaching aids for victims of domestic violence, mm-hmm. and you also incorporated a lot of music in your spoken word poetry as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to combine the two uh, in regards to, to the domestic violence. Um, I used to volunteer with some organizations in Illinois where I would use my poetry as a means of kind of 
you know, coming, well, speaking as if I was a victim of it, you know, so, so coming from that voice and, and somehow coming from that voice kind of helped them do, 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 uh, do their own jobs better when it came to dealing with, with people who, who had, had actually been, you know, been through those experiences. So, um, so I ended up getting invited to a lot of different conferences and, and to different meetings, you know, um, in Chicago and Miami and in St. Louis itself, you know, and just, it, it, it just kind of became a second job for me, uh, at a certain point in my life. So are you now focusing on composition and arrangements? So are you writing your own music now? Oh yeah. <laughs> that was the whole point of me coming to school. Really? <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, honestly, um, I've been writing songs since I was probably about earliest I can remember. Uh, it's probably nine years old. Um, and I would write the actual words, you know, but I didn't know how to write music, you know. So the whole point of me coming to school to study music was to actually learn how to write music. That way I can write down uh, what it is that's in my head and share it with everyone. Very cool. Um, so now, now that you're at MSU, you're you're in the jazz department. Are you specifically, or only looking at jazz right now? Or are you dabbling in other genres as well? Well, um, one person that I really, 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 really love to listen to. Well, well, one of several. I love Fela Kuti, and I don't know if you know who he is, but but he he's considered like the the father of Afrobeat. Okay. So I tend to like. You know, music with that that type of groove—a combination of funk, of jazz, you know, of of uh, of gospel, of just you know. I'm pretty much trying to involve everything that I've learned, everything that I've experienced thus far in life, and trying to to put it into my compositions and mm -hmm. and and into my arrangements. You know, some are s successful and some are still works in progress, but that's the whole point. So, what ki what kind of feel would you say most of your compositions are like so far? Afrobeat, jazz. That's the funny gospel, thing. Everything, a fusion of all. Yeah, that's the funny thing. Like, there's no one consistent thing. Like, I have some things, you know, something that's a combination of funk and reggae, and then I have something else that's like this odd metered, you know, in seven four. Um, uh, like Latin feel, you know, and then I have other things that are just ballads, and then I have things that are just straight ahead jazz, and then I have things that are blues, you know, with a different kick to it, too. So, well, is there anywhere where people can check out these compositions anywhere? Or are they not yet released? Not yet released. Um, sometimes you may catch me performing s some of my uh, compositions and arrangements on my live performances, and at this point, I'm just kind of uh, getting ready to. Work to to uh, work on my first album this year, so I'm doing all of this composing and arranging and then performing with the intent of, okay, I'm ready, I, I can go inside the studio and I can do my thing and feel comfortable with it. Excellent. Well, with that, do you want to sing one last song for us? Sure. Um, I think we said we're going to do Autumn Leaves. Uh, we're going to do Autumn Leaves. All right. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>
the studios Tamara Mares and her guitarist Ralph Tope. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Dan Clay is the director of MSU's Global Programs in Sustainable Agri-Food Systems, and he's here to talk about a program in Africa to help sustainable coffee production. Welcome to the show, Dan Clay. Thank you. So I understand MSU has a lot of involvement in um, the in in the country called Burundi, and um, you guys are doing lots of stuff there. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Burundi. Where is Burundi located, and, and mm. how are you guys helping out? Well, Burundi's in East Africa, uh, in the highlands of East Africa. It's a uh, very small country, uh, borders Rwanda, and I know some of your listeners are familiar with Rwanda uh, from our other projects. And just to the south is Burundi, um, a very small country, very mountainous, uh, with lakes and uh, quite a beautiful place. And describe the quality of life there for most people. Well, you know, Burundi is one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, 90% of the population is in agriculture and largely subsistence agriculture. So they eat what they produce, trade a little bit. Uh, and then there is uh, production of coffee and tea, which is their primary exports. Yeah, I understand that, that 68% of its 8.3 million residents live in poverty. And coffee is a livelihood of 800,000 farmers. And um, also coffee accounts for 80% of the East African uh, country's exports. So that's, that's a lot of people relying on coffee. Indeed. So... Um, where does the money from Burundi Coffee, where does that go towards? Well, you mean the, the, the money that is earned by, mm -hmm. by uh, producers? Yes. That's, uh, you know, that's what's, what's used to pay school fees, and that's what's used to uh, pay medical and, and to buy food uh, for, those, uh, for those items that are not produced locally. And, uh, and, and all other costs, really. I mean, that, the coffee is the, is the primary cash income of nearly the entire country. Can you talk about the quality of life for coffee workers in most coffee markets across the world versus Burundi coffee well, farmers? Yeah, I, Burundi is, is, again, one of the poorest countries in the world. 
uh, and 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 coffee is produced all over. Coffee is produced in, uh, as as you, you, I'm sure you know, in Central America and South America and Indonesia and and really across the globe in tropical areas. And many of those areas, uh, coffee farmers are doing much better than than they are in in parts of East Africa. But the the thing that that really excites me about coffee in particular uh, and production around the world is that coffee. Uh, is that the highest quality coffees are grown in highland areas, often mountainous areas, and you uh, in, in mountainous tropical areas. And you ask the question, where are the poorest people in the world? And that's where they are. All right, and that's where coffee grows. And so this is a real opportunity for coffee producers to, especially if they improve coffee quality, uh, and and can access. Uh, some of the global markets that are paying uh, top dollar for very good coffees. Uh, this is the opportunity, one of the great opportunities for smallholder producers to, to benefit from. Now, I understand that Burundi also um, had a civil war, which, it, which obviously affected the country. Can you talk about how that, that may have impacted um, coffee production? Well, it did in, in many ways. The Civil War, instability affects risk in many ways. I mean, it is risk, and and risk affects how people produce and their willingness to invest. And in the case of coffee, it's no, it's no different. So through that whole period of conflict that lasted more than a decade, 15 years uh, in the end, uh, you saw that the Burundi coffee that was once very strong, actually, back in the 1980s, uh, was diminished, and there was a coffee embargo, actually total economic embargo. So there was no, there were very little exports of coffee from Burundi. Uh, many producers just backed away, didn't maintain their their coffee fields, uh, uh, much lower production, and now they're just trying to get that back as they uh, come out of that conflict period. Can you tell us about the Burundi Coffee Database and Knowledge Network? That's an interesting. That's an interesting piece of, of our of the MSU project in in Burundi, and it's one that is uh, has been especially uh, exciting for all of us because it's a it, what it, what the, the 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 database and it's a, it's a website and a database and a and a basically a. Um, um, a network platform for all members, all players in the in the Burundi coffee value chain, right from producers through processors to uh, exporters, importers, uh, roasters in the U.S. and elsewhere, and of course consumers, and it becomes a resource for all of those players. And there, there, it's open access. Uh, others can contribute to it. And uh, it, it basically the, the purpose is to help help that value chain, help the Burundi coffee sector uh, become as profitable as possible and as um, as uh, um, in the end sustainable and and prosperous uh, for everybody involved in it. Can you also talk about the Intercafe Burundi? Intercafe is a is actually a new. Um, uh, it's a trade association. Uh, it's the coffee trade association that brings all of the actors in the coffee sector together, uh, along with the government, uh, regulations, regulators and policy, producers, processors, and so forth. And it, it supports, uh, it supports that entire uh, sector and, and through training, through research, through uh, access to markets, uh, and uh, and through, of course, the regulatory and policy side, and and that is, in fact, the 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 lead, the the, the centerpiece for MSU's work in in the in the database and knowledge network because that whole system, the platform, will is soon to be transferred to Intercafe, uh, which is the as I say, the trade organization that will will run that in the future. So how long has MSU been involved with um, the coffee industry in Burundi, and, and how have you seen the changes since MSU's been involved? We, we well, we just back up a little bit. We started in, in Rwanda uh, around 12 years ago and, and completely 
help to revitalize and transform that industry. Burundi looked on. Burundi was still in its conflict period during during that that whole stretch or much of it. And they looked on and said, we know what has what MSU has done in in Rwanda next door. We want to do the same thing. And so that's that's basically has been the inspiration. But uh, so MSU started there about five years ago. Uh, with our initial work, and uh, now we're four years into the current project with one year to go and a lot of uh, great success. So you're talking about Rwanda coffee, and, and, and um, you know, right now for this interview we're talking about Burundi, and I noticed that um, Paramount Coffee sells the coffee that comes from Burundi, and I noticed that, you know, when we, we go to the Sparty cafes here on campus. It's usually Rwanda coffee that I, that I see. Mm-hmm. So is that also going to Paramount? That these projects in Burundi and Rwanda, they're Paramount right here, located in Lansing. Yes, Paramount Paramount's coffee. been a, a fantastic partner in this in this whole whole uh, both of those projects, both of those areas, and uh, just uh, it's been a very exciting relationship. And uh, in fact, at the institute, we also have uh, a uh, and it's endowment fund that that um, um, Paramount Coffee contributes to every year. And that those are resources that get turned around and put into producers. And, and this past year, we bought a new uh, depulper for the main washing station producing the coffee, the Rwanda coffee, to uh, Paramount. We're, we're hoping to do the same thing in Burundi. So uh, I expect, and actually Burundi, um, per, uh, Paramount Coffee has begun to import Burundi coffee as well. So soon we're going to be seeing that um, in local markets, and I hope you're on campus. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Now, is is all this coffee, either with the projects in Rwanda or in Burundi, is it what would, would people would say free trade? Um Free trade or fair trade? Fair trade, sorry, fair trade. yes, fair yes. trade. Okay, um, much of the Rwanda coffee has been fair trade, yes. Uh, and uh, But the, the fair trade is a certification process that takes a, quite a long time and uh, and uh, typically three or four years. And so we're just now introducing certification in Burundi. Uh, right now, there's uh, what we what's this one certification which is called UTS, UTZ, UTS certified, uh, which is very similar to fair trade, uh, and so that has taken hold and has had a huge impact, to be honest, in in Burundi, uh, and so we're looking for that to expand, and we're we're anticipating that fair trade certification will be uh, coming in the future as well. So speaking of fair trade, I also noticed um, when I was researching um, on there's there's a lot of articles on MSU's news website about these projects, and um, they said that coffee growers are historically among the lowest paid in the region in Africa, and then they also said that most people in Burundi don't even drink coffee, and that's, that's right. a livelihood for so many people. So I'm curious when when you talk about when you see that type of information and you see a lot of hype around fair trade, I'm curious what is the livelihood for a lot for for most coffee growers. With all across the world, um, the, the, well, the, the, the it tends to be as I mentioned in, in the highlands of the of the tropics, which are among the poorest areas, where other things don't necessarily grow very well. Where you you don't have technology, you can't use tractors in the mountains and and so forth. So this is a uh, crops like coffee and tea that grow that that require a, a, a large a great deal of hand labor for very high quality coffees uh, is ideally suited for some of these places and and so uh, in 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 most of these countries we, what we find is that coffee is is the main source of cash income but not necessarily the main source of food and uh, which is often grown uh, on the farms and so forth so uh, again, very poor, but with uh, terrific opportunities, especially with the the new specialty coffee markets that um, that require the kind of uh, of uh, the the kinds of um, labor investments and some of the technologies that uh, you only get with small holders. 
And what does that mean by specialty coffee? Specialty coffees, basically gourmet coffees, or high, much higher quality coffees, and otherwise known in, in, in the context of, of uh, most coffee growing areas as fully washed coffee. And what and does that mean, fully washed? Fully, fully washed means it's, these are coffees that are, that are brought in, they, they're harvested, and they're processed within six hours of harvest because they start to deteriorate in quality. And that they go through a whole process of what we call wet milling, which is uh, uh, depulping, uh, soaking, fermenting overnight, uh, then going through a full, fully washed, and then pre-dried, and and then uh, shade shade dried, and and then sun dried, uh, and and it's a it's a whole long process that produces a much higher quality coffee, a much better tasting coffee in the end, uh, and it's very labor intensive, and that's that's again why a country like Burundi or Rwanda, with a lot of labor. Uh, available has been so successful in producing some of the best coffees in the world. So I'm curious, what inspired MSU to get involved with these coffee industries in Burundi and Rwanda? You know, uh, MSU is, is at the forefront when it comes to value chain development. Has been for for many years. Uh, even if you look at our business school, where where supply chain management is. Is is big. That's uh, is is one of the best in the country. That's the sort of those are the resources that an MSU brings to bear. Plus, you, you look at our international portfolio. It's one of the most internationalized universities in the world, uh, especially in agriculture and especially in Africa. And so, uh, a large group of folks, of faculty who who have interest and experience in these countries with value chain development, with agriculture, uh, and then and then looking and working with the communities there, focusing on many things. You know, we do research in food security. We do, uh, we do uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, climate change work and so forth now. Uh, but when it comes right down to it, it's the, the agriculture uh, and, uh, and looking for ways to help agriculture succeed and smallholders to produce higher incomes and in the context of the highlands of 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 east africa uh the coffee is is a is a natural uh target and and has been very successful for that reason so many of us have worked in places like rwanda and burundi through our entire careers and so this is just the next evolution and finally, can you talk about MSU's Global Agri-Food Systems Development Initiative? Um, that, that's a kind of a, I would say, a broad uh, initiative that is a, it's a, it's a composite of quite a number of projects that we have uh, in sustainable agri-food systems, and much of that is focused on on value chains, uh, access for smallholders to those global markets. Uh, we have a whole area that's focused on uh, on food safety because that's for for many suppliers, especially in things like products like fruits and vegetables, uh, uh, food safety is is the major issue and that's the major obstacle for many many of the smallholder producers around the world is how do you produce safe food and still high quality uh and uh, that meets in international standards so we're working we're working now in Thailand Vietnam uh Rwanda and Burundi uh, have had major programs in Ethiopia and Madagascar is currently in in Zambia we're we're uh um, literally, uh, India, a huge program just wrapping up now, a fantastic program in India, working with smallholders for exports. And that's basically, those are the sorts of things that we're doing with uh, through this initiative. And do you think with these projects, that, you know, going back to um, your work with, with coffee farmers in Rwanda and Burundi, do you think that the work that MSU done, has, has been doing can be done in a way in which soon we can step away and they can take the knowledge that they've learned and be able to function on their own without us needing to, you know, watch mm -hmm. over them and, and help them along the way? Well, that's always, that's, that's the goal. 
is, is sustainable development? And, and in the end, the answer to that question is yes. And uh, in the case of of Rwanda, we're just wrapping up a second project there, uh, but that that project has been led in many ways now by by the Rwandans themselves. Looking at Burundi, uh, the changes that have come about, I have no doubt that there will be difficulties and uh, a period of uh, sort of uh, regrouping and and uh, and and learning. But I think we've given we've helped to provide the the foundation for uh, um, very serious and uh, successful development in the future. Well, in the studio is Dan Clay. He's the director of MSU's Global Programs and Sustainable Agri-Food Systems, and he was here to talk about a program in Africa to help sustainable coffee production. Dan Clay, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Now back to Impact Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, in the studio I have Jennifer Cheverini. She is a New York Times bestselling author and writer of the Elm Creek Quilt series. Her latest book came out in late February, and it's called The Union Quilters. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. It's great to be here. So to start off, talk about what is the Elm Creek Quilt series. Well, it's an unusual sort of series. When I first wrote my book, my first book, it came out in 1999, and I am a quilter myself, and when you're starting out as a writer... Everyone tells you, write what you know. So I wrote about the history and the folklore of quilting, quilting's traditions, as well as all of the wonderful things that contemporary quilters are doing to really push the envelope of the art form. And I really thought that, like most writers, after I wrote about one interest that I had, I would be moving on to other topics. But I was fortunate that my first book was fairly well-received, and readers wanted a sequel, and I was happy to provide one. So I came out with another book. And But since I didn't know I was writing a series when I got started, I jump around in time. Some of my books might focus on contemporary characters, and then since I'm very passionate about American history, and particularly women's roles in American history, I'd like to delve into my contemporary characters' ancestors and their past. So I've had books set during the Civil War, during the antebellum period, during the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition. So it's, it's not your typical series where one book picks up exactly where the previous one left off. I do a lot of jumping around in time and introducing new characters. So when I think of a series, I think of maybe around six books or so, but you have written 17 books in these quilting series? That's right. And I think it's because I was able to stretch the definition of series that it's kept it fun and interesting and exciting for me to write because I can go to a new setting or a new era and bring in different characters. They, all of the events and all of the books are tied in some way to this fictional location where the stories are set, the Elm Creek Valley in rural central Pennsylvania. So they all have some tie to that, that location, whether it's contemporary era or in the past. So you're talking about how there's a lot to tell with a quilt. It has a lot of history. There's a lot of meaning to it. Elaborate on that. Talk about, in, in your books, what was the value of the quilt? Well, I think that uh, in my story, sometimes the quilt will perform a very important narrative role in the story. In my first novel, uh, The Quilter's Apprentice, I had an older character named Sylvia who was teaching a younger character how to quilt, and her name was Sarah. And as the two women had their quilting lessons, the different patchwork blocks, either because of their design or because of the evocative block name, would evoke some kind of memory from the older woman's life, either as a child or as a, a young bride on the World War II home front. And so this, the blocks that they sewed for the quilt would evoke these memories and allow them to share stories, and that's how they became closer and became friends. Sometimes the quilt will um, be important to the characters because it will be some kind of um, artifact from their family history, something that gives clues about their ancestry or their heritage, and by discovering more about the provenance of the quilt, they learn more about their own family and thus about themselves. You grew up in Michigan, and now you live in Wisconsin. That's right. Um, can you talk about, is, do you see a lot of um, 
Midwest themes appearing in your books at all? Well, I think so. Um, and it's it's funny. When I talk to people from the Midwest, they praise me for my dialogue. They say, oh, your dialogue sounds so realistic. I can really hear. And then I'll travel elsewhere in the country, and they don't give me that same kind of response. So I think I'm naturally bringing in, in my dialogue especially, kind of Midwestern influences and mis Midwestern word choices. And even the location in the contemporary books, the setting is called Waterford. And I chose that from Waterford, Michigan, which is where I grew up. So I, I think that every writer is a product of his or her childhood and coming of age years. And since that was for me here in Michigan, that's, that's a lot of that shows up in my books. Well, with that, will you be interested in reading an excerpt from your book? Sure, I'd love to. This is from my most recent novel, The Union Quilters, and this is set in Civil War era Pennsylvania. And the excerpt I'm going to read to you is very near uh, Pennsylvania's entry into the Civil War. The men of the town of Waterford have come together. They're going to uh, march off together to Harrisburg to enlist. And the women of the town and everyone else who's going to be left behind have planned uh, a, a very nice send-off for them with lots of patriotic speeches and music. And then they're going to bid farewell to all of the men. And one of the characters is very concerned because uh, the man that she loves is going to be marching off along with everyone else. And her name is Gerda. And her friend Dorothea has been very instrumental in planning this event. So you'll hear from both of those characters. The rally would begin with a dramatic recital performed by several of the most beautiful young women of the Elm Creek Valley, each wearing a sash of red, white, and blue embroidered with a name of one of the states. There had been some debate about whether only the loyal states should be represented and not the Eleven in Rebellion, but Dorothea had decided that since the object of the war was a unified nation, the pageant should depict all of the United States. As the young ladies took their places on the courthouse steps and recited their lines with patriotic passion, high above them the banner Gerda and Prudence had hung declared, Pennsylvania for the Union forever. Red, white, and blue bunting graced every window up and down High Street, and the entire block was filled with people, young and old, waving flags and cheering. Gerda estimated that nearly every citizen of Waterford and many from surrounding towns had turned out for the occasion, and she quickly found herself swept up in their patriotic fervor. After the pageant concluded, the band struck up Hail Columbia, and the mayor was introduced to enthusiastic applause. He spoke for half an hour about the importance of preserving the Union and of heeding the call to arms to fight for liberty and freedom and of the noble courage of Pennsylvania's brave youth who would gladly offer up their lives for their country. It was a stirring speech, or at least the crowd seemed to appreciate it, but Gerda, searching for Dorothea and Jonathan, could not have recited back a single phrase. As her friends and neighbors and strangers from throughout the Elm Creek Valley cheered and waved flags and tossed hats in the air and clapped in time with the band, her heart pounded with the realization that war was no longer merely a foreboding subject for lively debate around the dinner table and sewing circle. War had come, and Jonathan was leaving, and she might never see him again. Her throat constricted as the Lutheran and Methodist ministers took the podium together to offer a joint benediction for the brave men who would soon depart the Elm Creek Valley, some perhaps forever. As young girls showered the volunteers with late summer blossoms, the men formed ranks in the street in front of the courthouse, rucksacks on their backs or bags slung over their shoulders, the crowd parting before them. Abner fell in, as did Abel, as did one man after another, some, perhaps, who had not intended to enlist that day, but had succumbed to the fevered nationalism of the moment. Gerda searched the men's faces, praying for one last glimpse of Jonathan before he marched off to war, but she despaired of finding him in time. And in the studio is Jennifer Cheverini. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the Elm Creek Quilt series, in which she has read an excerpt from her latest book, The Union Quilters. Now, Jennifer, I'm, I'm curious, your book takes place during the Civil War. Uh, discuss the role of women during that time and how the war empowered them to seek suffrage. Well, I was, of course, the suffrage movement had been going on before the Civil War started, but uh, with, um, when the Civil War began, as most people are aware, the, you know, both the North and the South were completely unprepared to fight a war of this magnitude. There were shortages of everything, both North and South, from the beginning of the war all the way through the end. And it fell largely upon the people left at home to provide for the soldiers at the front. 
whether it was clothing, tents, bedding, food, medicine, bandages. And if not for the efforts of all the people on the home front, and the people on the home front were largely women, the, the sufferings of the soldiers at the front would have been even more dire than they were. And something that was fascinating to me in the course of my research is that I found that the volunteer organizations that the women on the home front put together in order to take care of the needs not only of their own loved ones but of other soldiers that they never met and never would meet is that the, the training that they received in these volunteer organizations really taught them how to have a public voice. They learned how to organize, they learned how to lobby, they learned how to speak in public and that was something that for a lot of women was not really considered appropriate for them. It was not really considered their proper sphere to go out into public and to do all these things to draw attention to themselves. And so during the war, it gave them this, all of these new skills that people need for a public life. And so after the war ended and after African-American men received, at least on paper, the right to vote, that right was denied to them through a number of other laws that came out later, but they realized, okay, now it's our turn. So it was this very strong motivational force to fight even harder to get the right to vote, and they had, large numbers of women had the tools and the training to be able to advocate for themselves the way they ab advocated for all the their husbands, brothers, fathers, and sons that were fighting in the Civil War. I also understand that quilts were very important during the Civil War because during that time, um, sometimes the Army didn't provide basic needs like clothing or bedding or things like that. So again, it was up to the people on the home front to be able to provide um, those types of things. Yes, that's absolutely right. And of course, it was a little controversial at first because the official line was, oh, no, no, our soldiers are well fed, they're well taken care of, they're in great shape. But then the letters home that the soldiers would send told an entirely different story. And uh, the United States Sanitary Commission w was begun in order to organize all of those local groups, those local chapters in small towns and small communities that would raise money and raise funds to to buy the things that the men need needed, but also they would have sewing bees, they would have quilting bees. At the beginning of the war, there weren't a lot of military hospitals. As soon as the war began, at, at first, of course, people thought, oh, it'll all be over in a few months, but before long, it became evident that they were going to need military hospitals. Well, they didn't even have the hospitals, much less bedding for those hospitals. So these women's volunteer groups were called upon to create, to make quilts for the soldiers that were recovering in all these hospitals. So their, their role was very important. And um, all of the things that I have in my novel of my fictional characters doing were things that real women did, both North and South. But of course, my, my book focuses on the Northern home front. And are you a quilter yourself? I am. It, was, it goes back to writing what you know. And I, I'm very passionate about not only the wonderful things that are be done, being done in contemporary quilt quilting to really take the art form in all kinds of new directions. But I'm very interested in how this was, in the United States at least, a fundamentally female art form. And part of that is because it also served a domestic purpose. Women weren't often encouraged to become artists because they had so much domestic work that they needed to attend to. And women who felt that they had an artistic impulse and they wanted to express themselves creatively often had their interests thwarted. However, quilting was an acceptable artistic medium for them because it also served to keep the family warm and to beautify the home. So a, a lot of women took this and really became fantastic artists. If you ever have a chance to see an antique quilt show, you'll marvel at all the wonderful techniques and varieties of quilt patterns that they use without all the wonderful tools that we have today, like rotary cutters and computerized sewing machines. And I, I can just imagine these women um, wanting to be artists and wanting to express their their inner artists and express themselves creatively and choosing this format not only by default but also out of love they wanted to become they wanted to express themselves but also give comfort and warmth to the people that they loved in their homes well in the studio is jennifer Cheverini. she is a new york Times best-selling author and she is the writer of the elm creek quilt series and her latest book came out in late february and that is called the union quilters jennifer thanks so so much for sharing your story with us on michigan storytelling segment thank you
broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.